As was mentioned, our gospel meeting is just around the corner. And we know, I know, the kind of work that Brother Ben Vic will do in that meeting. You can be assured the truth will be preached with power, with conviction, with compassion for the lost. I was just reminded this last week of just how important an invitation to a gospel meeting or to a worship assembly can be. We may not always think so, and it may not always lead to something that is fruitful, but that's not our responsibility as Christians. It's our responsibility to encourage others to to come, to be here ourselves, obviously, and to encourage others to come. On Wednesday night, when we were at the Forest Hill Congregation in Memphis, where the Memphis School of Preaching lectures are held, a lady came up to me afterwards, and I, I knew the face, but it had been 20-plus years, and I had to have her remind me of the name. But what a joy and what an encouragement as a gospel preacher it was for that young lady. Well, not as young now, obviously. Still looks pretty young. But she came up to me, and I recognized the face, as I said, gave her a hug, and she reminded me of something that had taken place 20-plus years ago. And that was when she came to the Collierville congregation, where I ultimately served as an elder and preached for a time, but Matt Amos was the preacher at that time and there. And I don't know if I was there in a gospel meeting or a special speaking engagement, what it was, but she reminded me that a sister in Christ named Frances, and I remember a Frances Dorr, D-O-R-R, I think she may have been a widow, who had invited Dale Neal, this young lady, to attend, and she said to me Wednesday night, she said, I, I was just coming to fulfill that commitment that I made to Francis, that I would come one time. And she said, I remember you were preaching on Acts chapter 2, and you were talking about the four, the unto, in Acts two thirty-eight, repent and be baptized, for unto, not in, not because of, And she related what I had preached, and she said, I'd never heard that. And she said, whereas I was determined I was going to make that one visit to get that commitment out of the way, and then I was going back to the Baptist denomination, she said, I have not returned to this point in time to the Baptist denomination. She had questions. She met with Matt Amos, she said, and talked with him. He answered her question, she obeyed the gospel, and she has never looked back. All because of one invitation from one lady to another, and because she came, and because her heart was where it should be, obviously. She was receptive to the truth. And if you think that lady has had a bed of roses since she became a Christian, she lost her husband to death and lost a daughter to cancer since becoming a child of God. And she has never looked back, despite that adversity. If you don't think that was an encouragement, (laughs) a much-needed one, it was indeed an encouragement. Preachers always need encouragement, don't they, Tommy? (laughs) And when you hear something like that, it is encouraging. I'm thankful to Matt Amos for the time he took with her and studying with her, but she had the kind of heart that heard and obeyed the gospel. 
I say that because it's important to invite people you never know. You never know. If they come even with just the understanding, I'm just getting this commitment out of the way. But they may hear something that may pique their interest and ultimately lead to the salvation of their soul. And I guarantee you, you will hear that which will lead to the salvation of souls in this upcoming gospel meeting. We're going to conclude 1 Timothy on Sunday morning and Sunday nights as far as treating this epistle to finish it. Before April 24th, we will move it to Sunday night after today because I think we can complete it with uh, two more Sunday nights. We have our gospel meeting one of those Sunday nights, of course. So this morning and this evening, we will look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, and then get into chapter 6 tonight so that we'll only have enough verses left that we should be able to finish those on Sunday night on the 10th. Sunday night and the 24th, that Sunday night. Great epistle, one that gospel preachers and Christians, for that matter, need to read on a regular basis and to appreciate fully Paul's exhortations to his young preacher, his son in the gospel. We've dealt with the elderly, and now he deals with the elders. He dealt with the elderly in the early part of this chapter, chapter Five, when he said, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. And so that is a statement about relationships, as we talked about when we studied that part of the epistle, that is so very important in terms of how we treat one another. But then he, in the section we're looking at today, does not deal with the elderly men with whom he had dealt in verse 1 of chapter 5, but now with the office of the eldership itself. And so he writes here, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and Doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. I've broken these verses down as follows. Verses 17 and 18 deal with making provision for elders. Verse 19 offers protection against criticisms that are unwarranted and accusations that are at times made against elders. But then in verse 20, Paul deals with punishment that at times is due to those who are elders who do not function as they should. And then in verse 21, he deals with partiality. Paul does in exhorting Timothy to deal with nothing or anyone with favoritism and partiality. In verse 22, he deals with patience in appointing elders, making sure you are careful and patient in your process, and also with purity, keeping yourself pure. In verse 23, he gives a prescription, a prescription specifically to Timothy because he's concerned about his young son in the gospel and about his physical Health, and he wants him obviously to be able to carry on his work in an effective 
way. And so verse 23 is literally a prescription, a medical prescription, if you will. And then finally, in verses 24 and 25, he gets back to patience again. After that aside on the prescription, he gets back to being very patient in the appointment of those who are the overseers of the flock of God. But look first then at the provision in verses 17 and 18. Let the elders, and this is the office of the eldership, not older men, though elders are to be older men, men of experience, men who are mature, let the elders who rule, and that indicates clearly they have authority, they have uh, rule, Hebrews thirteen seventeen. obey those who have the rule over you. That is an admonition by the Hebrews writer to Christians concerning their responsibility to the elders. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. What does the term double honor mean? Well, they're to be honored, obviously, in the respect that they are to be in the uh, aspect of being reverenced or, or respected, rather, looked up to if they are men who are qualified to serve, certainly. Because remember, it was James A. Garfield who said, I stepped down from the eldership to become president of the United States. And so it is an awesome responsibility, certainly, but it is one that is worthy of respect if indeed it is carried out, the work that is, by those who are truly qualified. But double honor has a monetary connotation to it. Double honor has basically the equivalent meaning of our word honorarium. And when someone receives an honorarium, we're talking about a monetary compensation. And so Paul is saying that there are those elders who basically are full-time in the sense that they labor, as he points out, in the word and doctrine. They devote themselves full-time, as it were, to doing the work of the elder, especially as those who are laboring in the word, that is, preaching and teaching. And he says they are to be worthy of double honor. In other words, here is an authorization for paying one who is an elder. I had an instructor at the Memphis School of Preaching who said that he always, as a preacher in local work, appreciated having a full-time elder uh, more than an associate preacher. Well, I appreciated having an associate preacher, but you know what he was saying. He was saying that a full-time elder can carry on some work and carry out some obligations that an associate preacher can't, unless that associate preacher happens to be an elder also, which would be even better. But he was saying, I appreciate having an elder available who is able to help in the areas where the work of elders is so vitally important. But we know we're talking about a monetary situation here because look at verse 18. Verse 18 makes it abundantly clear that we're talking about paying one who is an elder who can labor in the word and doctrine. Full time would be a, a good term for it, perhaps. For, because, in other words, here's the reasoning, for, because the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Well, that makes it abundantly clear that the term double honor is a reference to monetary compensation. He's talking about paying a man to be able to carry out the work of an elder on a basically full-time basis. 
And it's interesting, and we alluded to this in Bible class this morning, that we would talk more about it in the lesson. As he discusses the provision monetarily for this elder who labors in word or doctrine, and incidentally, the word labor there indicates laboring to the point of weariness, basically wearing yourself out, hard work. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. There, he is quoting from Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4, an Old Testament passage. But when he adds, and the laborer is worthy of his wages, he's quoting from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And what does Paul call both of those references? He calls them Scripture. And the word that is used here for Scripture in the New Testament always means sacred writing. Graphe, we think of graphics. Graphe, but it means in the New Testament, it means sacred writings. And so when Paul uses this term, he is clearly affirming that the Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 25.4, and the New Testament passage, Luke 10.7, are both inspired writings. They are both the writings inspired by the Holy Spirit. And notice something else. For the Scripture says, that's present tense, for the Scripture says, written some time ago. This shows that uh, the Gospel according to Luke was all uh, already written at the time Paul uh, referenced it. And obviously we know that Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25.4 had already been written. And yet, he didn't say the Scripture said... But he says, the scripture says, it's been written, but it keeps on what? It keeps on saying, which indicates what? The ongoing relevance and power and pertinence of the scriptures. It's been written, yes, but it's also pertinent to us today. And it says something else about the Old Testament passage in particular. Deuteronomy 25.4 was written when the law of Moses was in effect. But what does that demonstrate to us? The fact that Paul used it as an illustration or as a principle to prove his point about provision for the elders. It says what Paul elsewhere wrote in Romans 15, 4. For the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. He's saying there are some eternal principles that are contained in those Old Testament books that are still relevant to us today, while the law of Moses, of course, has been nailed to the cross. And so, indeed, this is a powerful passage, verse 18 of 1 Timothy 5. It tells us that the Old and the New Testament are both inspired by God, they are pertinent and relevant to us today, and that there are things that, even from that old law, that are principles that can be applied to us under the new covenant. So verses 17 and 18 are provision. Provision for the elders. Taking care of them monetarily if they are working full time. But in verse 19 we see protection. We also see protection for, for them. Paul says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. If you go back with me to Deuteronomy again, and you see the basis of this under the, under the old law, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 6 says, Who, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death, 
on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. You also see that uh, repeated in Deuteronomy 19, if you'll look there, and verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. How did Jesus make some application that would be certainly pertinent to us today? In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, withdraw fellowship from him. So from both the old and the new, and in part of what Jesus was giving as he lived among men as his new covenant, we see the sobering teaching concerning accusations against an elder. And really, the principle would apply to accusations against any fellow Christian, would it not? In terms of how we should conduct ourselves, and that's what Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is dealing with. That's dealing with Christian versus Christian. That's not dealing simply with the eldership. And so the protection that is provided here in verse 19 for the elder is rather than unwarranted criticisms or false accusations, be very, very careful in that regard and make sure that they are properly leveled, if indeed they need to be leveled, at the mouth of two or three witnesses. But in verse 20, he points out that there at times can be and should be punishment, if you will. That's what I see in verse 20. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. Who are the those in verse 20? I think the eldership is still involved here because that's the antecedent. The antecedent of those is the word elder back in verse 19. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is that there may be times when there are those among the eldership who are sinning and need to be rebuked. It needs to be done in a proper way even then, going back to Matthew 18, 15 through 17, really, and using that process, I believe, would certainly be be pertinent. And we have to keep in mind that Timothy was at Ephesus where there were some problems in the church and where there may indeed have been among the eldership some who were teaching false doctrine and who needed to be publicly rebuked and, yes, even removed from their position if indeed they would not repent. So we have provision for the elders who rule well in verses 17 and 18, protection for them against unwarranted criticism and false accusation in verse 19, and yet punishment that can be leveled and should be leveled, properly executed, of course, when they need to be admonished. And then verse 21, but as you do all of this, he says to Timothy, do it without partiality. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Who's watching? Isn't that what he's saying? Timothy, keep in mind that there are those heavenly beings who are very much aware of everything that occurs. God the Father, God the Son, and yes, the elect angels. The angels who 
No doubt are good angels, not the bad or evil angels who rebelled against God, but those who minister in the realm of salvation within the providence of God, obviously. And those that are mentioned by the Hebrews writer in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. Are they not all, he's speaking of angels, ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? The elect angels, God the Father and God the Son, are observing these things. They're observing your behavior. They're observing everyone's behavior. They are aware whether anyone else is or not. And so do these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Does that mean, Timothy, you can't have any good friends in the congregation? Well, of course not. Peter, James, and John were part of what many have called the inner circle among the apostles. But does that mean that Jesus showed favoritism or partiality to those versus the other apostles? No. But the indication was there was a closeness there. But he is saying you make sure that partiality is never shown in your dealings. And then patience and purity in verse 22 are set forth. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. Is he saying don't hit anybody hastily? But after you think about it, you can knock them for a loop? Well, of course not. He's not talking about laying hands on somebody in the sense of hurting them or hitting them. He's talking about what? Laying hands on them in the sense of an appointment to the eldership. You see, Timothy was a special individual, special individual that we do not have in congregations today. The appointment of elders today is done by the congregation in terms of their participation, and that's not to say that the appointment of elders at Ephesus was not done in that same way, but Timothy had some special authority as one who was commissioned by Paul, upon whom Paul had laid hands to impart miraculous gifts. And Timothy was guiding a process here. And so he's saying, don't you be a party to the process by approving, by a ceremonial laying on of hands, is what we are looking at here, I believe, very clearly, that we read in Acts 13 with Barnabas and Saul when the eldership laid hands on them to commission them on the first uh, missionary journey, etc. He's saying, don't be hasty in making appointments or being a party to these appointments, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. So patience in the process of appointing elders and purity in your own life are vitally important. And then he takes time and this shows the compassion of the Apostle Paul for his young son in the gospel. He takes time to issue a prescription. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. You know, I thought it was interesting in just looking at this. I know, first of all, that it does not in any way, shape, or form or fashion condone social drinking. Not at all. It is a prescription. But I think even the wording suggests that. Notice he doesn't say no longer drink only water, but drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. He actually uses the word use a little wine. And the wording to me almost suggests a medical prescription based upon the use. Why didn't he say don't drink water only, drink, drink some wine. Have a drink or two every day. Have a drink of wine. But he uses a different word. It's not the word drink as in verse 23 in the first part, 
but it is the word use, make use of. A medical prescription, if you will, is here. And it also indicates that Timothy had a stomach issue. He had some sort of physical malady that affected him, probably on a quite regular basis. And Paul was very much aware of it. He was also aware of the water supply, I'm sure, at Ephesus. And it was an aging city and the harbor was silting up and there was potential pollution of the underground water supply by the sewage uh, situation there. Uh, Have you ever heard of anyone who's become sick from drinking bad water? Well, of course, of course. And so he was telling him, you have refrained from even using wine in a medicinal fashion because you are being extremely careful is the indication here. But he's saying to him, Timothy, you are being overly careful. You don't need to be that careful. You can use, mix with that water some wine because it has purifying uh, effect and properties. And so it is clearly a medical prescription. And this is not a sermon in which we discuss social drinking and all the arguments that could be leveled against social drinking, and they are many, obviously. But it is clear from the context that he is telling him to mix with water on occasion a little wine for your what? For your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. Well, is it necessary that we mix a little wine with our water today? No, of course not. Uh, There's no need for that uh, at all. But the point is that it is not a condoning of the use of wine in any kind of social setting. And then, as we've mentioned before, when you compare the wine that Paul would have been talking about with the wine today, it's apples and oranges. It's a contrast. It is not a comparison in terms of the percentage of alcoholic content. But now in verses 24 and 25, he returns to patience again. And we could say perception, too. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. In other words, you don't really have to look very hard to see the life of certain men. Their actions and their activities are clearly evident and they precede them to judgment. What kind of judgment? Well, I think here the greater likelihood is that it's the judgment of Timothy and others in terms of their being worthy of serving as elders. You don't have to be concerned about whether you're going to make the right judgment regarding some of these men. Their sins are so evident they are out of the picture. They are not candidates at all for the eldership. But those of some men follow later. It may even be that after appointing certain men to the eldership, it only becomes evident later on that these men are really not proving themselves to be worthy of serving. But by way of contrast, look at the good works versus the evil. Verse 25. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident. It won't take you long, Timothy, in other words, to know about certain men because Their good works are so evident. They are abundant in good works. It is so clear. They have a great reputation. Their character is blameless. And these men are pretty easy people to pick in terms of candidates. But 
he says, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. In other words, there may be some who are not as clearly qualified based upon being a little bit lower key, a little bit shyer, whatever, but they're good men nonetheless, and eventually their good works will manifest themselves too. And so you'll be able to exercise perception and patience in the selection of these men. Well, what all of this tells us, along with the qualifications that we've already studied back in 1 Timothy 3 and that are also mentioned in Titus 1, is that the eldership is an important and awesome responsibility. And it is certainly God's plan for the church. And we need to do all that we can to encourage young men to develop themselves and to desire to give themselves in the service of the Lord's church in this capacity because this is God's ideal and scriptural arrangement. We can be... We can be scripturally unorganized as we are here at White Oak now. Scripturally unorganized in the sense that we do not have men who are willing and able to serve as elders. But that doesn't mean that we ever need to be satisfied in that situation. Never should the church anywhere be satisfied to linger very long in that situation unless it's absolutely necessary. Because it is not God's ideal arrangement. There's no question about that. Well, you can't ever become an elder unless you become a Christian. That's for sure. And so this morning as we close these thoughts, if you are not a child of God, then we plead with you to become a child of God. Can't be an elder until you become a Christian. Can't be a good elder's wife until you become a Christian if you're a woman here who has not obeyed the gospel of Christ. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you need to come home to your first love as a wayward child, we plead with you to do that. Come now as we stand and sing to encourage you. Jesus control 
Is thy heart right with God? Does he each moment abide in thy soul? Is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. Be seated, please. Please turn to 208. <coughs> 208. We're saying the first three verses of Maribas for the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> Tis midnight and on olive's brow the star is dim that lately Shown. Tis midnight in the garden now. The suffering Savior prays alone. Tis midnight and from all removed. The Savior wrestles long <coughs> with fears. Even the disciple whom he Grief and tears. Tis midnight and for others' guilt. The man of sorrows weeps. pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this Lord's Day and we're thankful for this opportunity to gather around this table to remember our Lord's death upon that cruel cross. We pray that each one will partake of this loaf in a manner that will be pleasing in thy sight. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity we have to gather around thy throne to partake of this fruit of the vine, which truly represents the blood that our Lord and Savior shed on that cruel cross for our sins. May we participate in this in a worthy manner. In Christ's holy name, amen.
That concludes the Lord's Supper. We now have an opportunity to give back to the church. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless each one this morning who gives of their means to help the church. We pray, Father, that you bless us, forgive us our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to number 105, 105. Sing the first verse and we'll be dismissed. If you would, please stand. <clears throat> it may be in the valley where countless dangers hide. It may be in the sun. Shine that I in peace abide. But this one thing I know, if it be dark or fair, if Jesus is with me, I'll go anywhere. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. <laughs> Tis heaven to me, where'er I may be, if he is there. I count it a privilege here, his cross to bear. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go Great and loving Heavenly Father, we humbly bow before you now and give you thanks for this hour of worship that we've had to hear your word proclaimed to us and to give us the bread of life to sustain us through the rest of this day and the rest of this week. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this congregation of your people where the truth can be proclaimed and shown throughout this neighborhood. <clears throat> we thank you, Heavenly Father, for each and every one that's here this morning. We pray for those who can't be here because of illness or other means. We pray, Heavenly Father, for your help and sustenance for them and for those that are tending and caring for them. We pray, Heavenly Father, now that you'll be with us as we depart this place. Bring us back at the next appointed hour, if it be your will, and forgive us of our sins. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>